Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girlbomb. Girlbomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girlbomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you, and treat yourself to some Conair Girlbomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. There's a place in our world where the doubtful things go. A morgue of fakes, hoaxes, and frauds. File drawers crammed with folders. Federal Bureau of Investigation, classified. There must be a thousand pages here. The treason files. It's like, not the X-Files, it's the T-Files. This place, this vault of suspicious claims and dubious evidence, lies half hidden in the shadow of doubt, half lost in a time between now and then. The sign on the door reads, The Last Archive. The first thing I usually do when I come in here is switch on this old radio and turn the dial, this time to the year 1944. This is Berlin calling. Berlin calling the American mothers, wives, and sweethearts. And I'd just like to say, girls, that when Berlin calls, it pays to listen. When Berlin calls, it pays to listen in. The tape is old and wobbly and raspy. It can be hard to make out. But what you're hearing is the voice of an American woman who's working for Nazi Germany. Since the middle of the 1930s, Germany had been broadcasting via shortwave radio to Africa, Latin America, the Far East, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, and Australia. But its broadcast to the United States outnumbered all of its other programs, by far. These broadcasts reported on a supposed communist Jewish conspiracy. Newspapers took to calling these broadcasts fake news. That's where the expression comes from. And this is what it sounds like. Because I'm not on the side of President Roosevelt. I'm not on the side of Roosevelt and his Jewish friends and his British friends. Because I've been brought up to be a 100% American girl. This broadcaster, Americans called her Axis Sally. 
She was trying to destroy American morale, trying to convince Americans that the Allies were going to lose the war, trying to get Americans to doubt the real news that they heard on American radio. But Axis Sally, she was an American too, an American in Berlin. Welcome to The Last Archive, the show about how we know what we know and why it seems lately as if we don't know anything at all. I'm Jill Lepore. This season, I'm trying to trace the history of doubt. We talk a lot these days about all the white nationalist propaganda on the internet. Trolls, memes, neo-Nazis. The founder of a neo-Nazi website is facing a lawsuit for allegedly targeting a Jewish woman in Montana with a, quote, troll storm. There are lots of reasons to worry today about how this stuff spreads and what it does. But I'm a historian, so I thought it might be worth asking, not about the neo-Nazis, but about the actual Nazis. What did their troll storms sound like? They used a different technology, not the ethernet, but the airwaves. So this episode, Nazi radio propaganda. And I have to warn you, some of the language you're gonna hear is explicit and disturbing. I mean, it's Nazi radio. Still, I think it's really important. Because a defeat for Germany would mean a defeat for America. And that's why, girls, I'm staying over here and having these little heart-to-heart talks with you The voice of Axis Alley came, broadcast by shortwave radio, into American homes. Here, she was addressing herself to American women, mothers, wives, girlfriends. Everything she said was animated by anti-Semitism, hatred and venom, deception. And then, in between the racist ranting, she'd play these jaunty little jingles. The tape's so hard to make out because of how it got recorded in the first place. During the war, a federal government listening post in Maryland, staffed 24 hours a day, tuned in to Radio Berlin. Engineers there recorded, as best they could, whatever broadcasts they could catch. And then after the war ended, the Justice Department thought about whether it might be possible to put Axis Alley on trial for these recordings. Do you say, my country, right or wrong? No, girl. That's false sentimentality. And I do not say, my country, right or wrong. I love America. But I do not love Roosevelt and all of his tight boyfriends who have thrown us into this awful turmoil. Good night, girl. Look, I just as soon forget this lady. Good night, crazy lady. But this episode, I'm going to play more of this trick, because as bad as it is, understanding it still requires what literary scholars call a close reading. The way you'd read, say, something completely different. A very good poem. Propaganda hijacks language and puts it into the service of the state. The opposite of propaganda is poetry, which puts language in the service of humanity. A really good poem is a lot like that badass sticker on Woody Guthrie's guitar, This Machine Kills Fascists. This poem kills propaganda, I like to think. Poetry eats propaganda for breakfast and then spits out the bones. Words in time, bewildered with the broken tongue of wakened angels in our sleep. That's the American Archibald McLeish reading his post-war poem, Words in Time. McLeish was a poet, but he was also, during the Second World War, 
the U.S. government official charged with countering German propaganda. There is a moment when we lie bewildered, wakened out of sleep, when light and sound and all reply. That moment time must tame and keep. McLeish, as a young man, had fought in the First World War. His poems about that war chronicle its atrocities, and most of all, its meaninglessness. It was written at the time, four or five years after the First World War, when it began to dawn on some of us who had not been intelligent enough to have it dawn on us earlier, that that war had been misfought and for nothing, and that those who had died in it had died pretty much for nothing. That war, the First World War, haunted McLeish. The American public hadn't wanted to get involved in the war in Europe. And once the U.S. got in, Woodrow Wilson had to establish a thing called the Committee on Public Information, which was charged with whipping up a frenzy for the war. It used the tools of mass advertising and mass communication. It lied a lot. After the war, one guy wrote a book about it all. It was called Falsehood in Wartime. He argued there must have been more deliberate lying in the world from 1914 to 1918 than in any other period of the world's history. That might even be right. There was so much lying in the First World War that lying as a deliberate, well-funded, state-sponsored campaign got another name. People started calling it propaganda. McLeish, he was sick of that stuff. He'd lost his brother in the war. He'd sit in the field and watched his friends fall one by one. So he wrote poems that told the truth. The disastrous war and crossed the dark defile at last and found at Roncevaux upon the darkening plain the dead against the dead and on the silent ground the silent slain. McLeish, after he came back from the First World War, worked as a reporter for Henry Luce, who'd founded Time magazine in 1923. Luce had wanted to call the magazine simply Facts, because Luce had fought in that war of lies too, and like McLeish, he was sick of it. McLeish and all these other veterans of the war who became journalists, they brought home a passion for truth and clarity and stark description. They brought it into their writing. McLeish wrote for Luce's magazines, and then he also wrote poems and plays. He became one of the nation's best-known writers with a deep commitment to public service. Then in 1939, FDR appointed him Librarian of Congress, the Keeper of the Keys, the man who opens the gate to knowledge, the last archivist. The year McLeish accepted that appointment, the Second World War began, a war that would eventually take the lives of over 60 million people. By now, propaganda had gotten a lot more sophisticated, and it got a new name, psychological warfare. Americans came to believe that the Germans were particularly good at it, deviously good, and that in top-secret psychological laboratories, they were perfecting methods more dangerous than the most potent bomb. One American journalist wrote a book about it called The Strategy of Terror. He said that the Germans had defeated the French before even a single German soldier had entered France by way of an inner front of the mind. 
Do you wonder what Hitler will do next more often than you wonder what America will do next? Do you sit up for the 11 o'clock news broadcast? Do the headlines get you down? In 1940, when The Strategy of Terror came out, the book's publisher took out a splashy ad in the New York Times asking Americans to examine their own news consumption. If your answer to these three questions is yes, then the psychological barrage has reached you. The only defense is understanding. The strategy of terror will give you this understanding. The publication of The Strategy of Terror stirred up a nationwide panic about Nazi propaganda coming across the ocean on shortwave radio. But did the Nazi strategy of terror really work? The director of the radio program at the University of Chicago was skeptical. Radio is a secret weapon, he said. The secret is how to use it as a weapon. But the alarm about German psychological warfare had achieved its purpose. It convinced a lot of Americans that even though the Germans were an ocean away, they had already invaded the United States. Today we call this sort of thing a perception hack. Like with the election of 2020, Russia didn't need to hack our entire election system. They just needed to scare Americans into thinking that they could. The United States is now subject to a total barrage of the Nazi strategy of terror. That's Archibald McLeish again. Okay, except this time it's our actor reading what McLeish wrote about all this. He'd been librarian of Congress, but FDR put McLeish in charge of the Office of Facts and Figures, America's own propaganda operation. As it happened before the First World War, a lot of Americans didn't want to have anything to do with this new war in Europe. They were isolationists. McLeish and FDR were interventionists, and they were trying to convince Americans that they were already involved in the war because they were being attacked psychologically by way of the airwaves. Hitler thinks Americans are suckers. By the very vastness of his program of lies, he hopes to frighten us into believing that the Nazis are invincible. McLeish here was describing exactly what Axis Sally was trying to do with her radio program, frightening Americans into believing that the Nazis are invincible. Girls, you all know, of course, by now, that it's a very serious situation. McLeish, heading up the Office of Facts and Figures, he was a little uncomfortable in the role of a propagandist. He didn't believe in telling lies to destroy the enemy's morale. There had to be a better way. He believed that writers have an obligation to fight fascism in the battle for public opinion, not by lying, but by telling the truth. The truth of journalism was his weapon, the honesty required for the proper functioning of a democracy. The duty of government is to provide a basis for judgment, and when it goes beyond that, it goes beyond the prime scope of its duty. McLeish believed a democracy should wage a war of fact, should bring the same commitment to wartime information for the public that journalists bring to good reporting. He wanted to oppose the Germans' strategy of terror with what he called the strategy of truth. It is the strategy of truth, the simple and clarifying truths by which a nation such as ours must guide itself. But the strategy of truth is not because it deals in truth devoid of strategy. It is not enough in this war of hoaxes and delusions and perpetuated lies to be merely honest. It is necessary also to be wise. 
McLeish said that Americans could count on truth because of the nation's extraordinary tradition of journalistic excellence, accuracy, and fairness. So he tried to run this office of facts and figures, getting information out to the public, real information, the way a magazine might work. But that's not what a wartime propaganda office does. His idealism did not survive the war. In 1942, McLeish scaled back his involvement at the Office of Facts and Figures. FDR then hired an ad man from Coca-Cola to work there. People who used to work for McLeish made fun of this new guy, as if American propaganda was now going to sound like this. Step right up and get your four delicious freedoms. It's a refreshing war. So yeah, there was Allied propaganda. Still, let me be clear. Selling the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want, is a world of difference from selling anti-Semitism, race hatred, and white nationalism, and committing genocide. A world of difference. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Good evening, women of America. Well, you know, as time goes on, I think of you more and more. I can't somehow seem to get you out of your out of my head. You women in America. Starting in 1942, Axis Sally's broadcasts went out to American troops. She also visited POW camps and interviewed American prisoners, and then sent word of them on broadcasts that were meant to go all the way back across the Atlantic and into American homes. And now for time set. At the sound of the gong, it was exactly 9 o'clock Eastern wartime. There were actually a couple of wartime broadcasters known as Axis Sally. This one's real name was Mildred Gillers. She'd been born in Portland, Maine. For a while, she was an actress in New York. In the 1930s, she moved to Germany. How she ended up working for Radio Berlin is kind of a big mess, but she was a star there. One thing she had a sinister talent for was baiting American listeners who were desperate to hear news, any kind of news, of their loved ones. You women in America, waiting for the one you love, waiting and weeping in the secrecy of your own room, thinking of the husband, the son, or the brother who is being sacrificed by Franklin D. Roosevelt, perishing on the fringes of Europe. In order for American officials to try Gillers for treason, they first had to find her. And that proved to be a challenge. Germany has surrendered unconditionally. Japanese have just officially laid down their own. Berlin, 1946, a city in ruins, piles of rubble towering on street corners alongside the empty husks of bombed buildings. Hans Winson, an American counterintelligence agent, put up wanted posters looking for Axe Sally. He knocked on doors, flashing a photograph. Ich suche nach dieser Frau. Nein, nein. She carried an alligator purse and clutched a cigarette like a dagger. She was pushing 50. She wore the clothes of a college girl. She was about as natural as a hydrogen bomb. American reporters would later call her Hitler's girlfriend. One day, Winston got lucky. He got a tip that Axis Sally, Mildred Gillers, was selling her furniture to secondhand shops all around town. Before she'd gone into hiding, she'd stored some of her things in the basement of her old apartment building. 
Winston got the superintendent to let him in. Well, I'll be damned. Das ist alles. Jackpot. Stowed in that basement, Winston found exactly what U.S. authorities had been searching for. Records of Mildred Gillers' radio broadcasts. You can hear, listening to those records, how this stuff might have worked as propaganda. It's pretty subtle. That would make bringing her to trial tricky. Girls, watch out. Don't forget the beautiful things we have at home. Two years after Winston tracked Gillers down, she was brought to the U.S. to face charges of treason. The case against her would have to establish that she had given aid and comfort to the enemies of the United States, and under the terms of a recent Supreme Court decision, that she had intended to provide that aid and comfort. There's still a question, though. Can you commit treason by radio? By the time the Justice Department was really putting together its case against Gillers, another American who'd broadcast under the name Paul Revere, had just been tried. From the heart of Hitler, Germany, your messenger Paul Revere greets you again. Countrymen, friends, foes, Jew-haters and Jew-servers. That guy? He was found guilty of treason. What would happen to Gillers, though, was still not clear. To convict her, prosecutors would have to provide either a confession or two witnesses. Gillers wasn't about to confess to treason. The punishment for treason could be death. So the prosecution needed those two witnesses, who could both identify her and speak to her intent. Special Agent Joseph T. Jenko, a lawyer from Brooklyn, headed the investigation. He'd been tracking Gillers for years. In the 1920s, before Gillers went to Germany, she'd worked as an actress and a model in New York. Jenko interviewed people who'd known her, People like a guy named Wilford Thomas. She was very dumb. I'm at a loss to understand how she could be doing anything which would be considered inimical to the interests of the country. Building a case against Gillers took months. Janko and other FBI agents tracked down and interviewed men who might have heard Gillers while in prison camps, German Stalags. The FBI heard rumors that Gillers had coerced some of those men into making recordings saying they were being treated well. That would have been very damning evidence. But Jenko couldn't find those recordings, and I can't find them either. For a while, the Justice Department thought about just dropping the case. The break came when investigators obtained a recording of a broadcast called Vision of Invasion. It was a radio play in which Gillers had starred. With this evidence, the grand jury issued an indictment. It included some pointed legal language, charging her with having participated in a phonographic recording knowing that it would be broadcast to the United States, to its citizens and soldiers at home and abroad as an element of German propaganda and an instrument of psychological warfare. Gillers' trial began early in 1949 in U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C. Reporters gasped at their first look at her. At 48... She has the figure of a woman of 48 who has worked hard and sacrificed much to keep the figure she had at 24. Richard Rivera covered the trial for The New Yorker. Her entire getup, the tight black dresses, the black spike-heeled shoes, the indigo scarf that she uses for gesturing, the generous applications of lipstick and nail polish, suggest that she is torn by an inner conflict. Although she is trying desperately to avoid conviction, 
She is at the same time determined not to destroy the illusion of herself as a woman of mystery, glamour, and intrigue. This is before television. Rivera's painting a picture. Also, as he describes Gillers, she does sound not only terrible, but fascinatingly clueless. The notion of Miss Gillars as a woman of glamour, either sinister or otherwise, is one that, at this stage of the game, anyway, only Miss Gillars herself can harbor. And here's the part that knocks me out. The novelty of the evidence. The technological novelty of it. Gillers was being tried for the crime, the treason of having been an instrument of psychological warfare. But to accommodate the evidence of this crime, the courtroom was outfitted with a record player and 40 sets of headphones, and only 40. The judge, the defendant, the lawyers, the jurors, and a handful of reporters, each of them had a set of headphones. It was said that it looked like a miniature United Nations in there. The judge said the headphones were necessary because the recordings were hard to hear without them which I think is true. The recordings are really difficult to hear. But I also don't totally buy the judge's explanation. In a crowded courtroom, 40 sets of headphones really isn't that many. It meant that no one in the audience could hear the evidence, not Gillers' family or any of the spectators. Her lawyer later filed an appeal saying that she'd been denied a public trial, which is a constitutional right. But I think maybe the judge had thought, these recordings are toxic. Let's not expose the whole room to it. The prosecution had first to prove that Gillers' voice, not someone else's voice, was the voice on those records. It did that by bringing to the stand a guy who'd worked at Radio Berlin. They asked him if he'd ever seen her speaking into a microphone. Yes, many times. Did he recognize her voice on the stack of 22 records right here? Yes. Gillers' lawyer didn't have much by way of a defense. He said that she'd been hypnotized in Berlin by a German Svengali, who before she went to Europe had been her professor at Hunter College. At that point, reporters noted, Miss Gillers dabbed her eyes. But his argument was undercut by the prosecution bringing in witnesses who pointed out that Gillers was the best paid of all the Third Reich's broadcasters. And then the prosecution began the playback. And I'll stick to my guns as long as I can fire them, girl. The prosecution played those records for hours and hours. As one American to another, do you love the British? Why, of course the answer is no. Do the British love us? Well, I should say not. But we are fighting for them. We are shedding our good young blood for this kite war, for this British war. Oh, girls, why don't you wake up? The most crucial piece of evidence was the poorest quality recording, that radio drama, Vision of Invasion, which had been broadcast just before D-Day. We are going to present tonight a radio play entitled Vision of Invasion. Vision of Invasion was essential to the prosecution's argument about intent because it supported the contention that Gillers had tried to undermine American morale. Broadcast in the weeks before D-Day, it tells the story of an American mother worrying that her son might drown in the English Channel during an invasion attempt. Other actors who'd performed in the radio play testified that Gillers had performed the role of the mother, but anyone in the courtroom could hear that for themselves. 
Roosevelt had no right to go to war, she said. Richard Rivera, the New Yorker reporter, found listening to the stuff in that courtroom with those headphones unbearable. Five years ago, one could listen to it partly for its comic value and partly to sense the full evil of the thing. But now it has lost its power to either amuse or arouse. Its only effect is to make one feel ashamed of one's ownership of a human mind. It got worse for Gillers from there. When the prosecution played another record in which Gillers said, damn Roosevelt and damn Churchill and damn all of their Jews who have made this war possible, Gillers' attorney answered, she had a right to be anti-Roosevelt, a right to be anti-British, and a right to be anti-Jewish. That was his best argument. Mildred Gillers was convicted of treason, of betraying her country, of having become an instrument of psychological warfare, because she had tried to cause Americans to doubt their ability to win the war. In 1961, when she got out of prison, a reporter asked her for her thoughts. After some 15 years in prison, what am I supposed to say? She was at last speechless. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on the storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. There's a lot to be learned about the now by looking back to the 1940s and at the many costs and tragedies of psychological warfare. In 1942, the U.S. War Department created a psychological warfare branch. It concluded that American troops in the Pacific were being subjected to Japanese psychological warfare. Hollywood got interested. In 1944, in a Cary Grant film, Americans were introduced to a Japanese radio broadcaster called Tokyo Rose. Picking up anything, Sparks? Magnificent history. Tokyo Rose, giving out with that nightly guff to the USA. Listen to this. Never been defeated in a war. The sooner you Americans realize that Japan is invincible, the better. So perfect is the iron ring of defense. After the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor at the end of 1941, FDR signed an executive order calling for the mass evacuation and mass imprisonment of over 100,000 people of Japanese descent living in the United States. Many of them were U.S. citizens. And then the government put out an especially despicable piece of propaganda, defending internment by lying about it. Evacuation. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. Their evacuation did not imply individual disloyalty. They are not prisoners. They are not internees. They are merely dislocated people, the unwounded casualties of war. After the war, about the same time that federal authorities were building a case against Mildred Gillers, the Justice Department also got interested in finding and prosecuting a Japanese radio broadcaster, someone who, like Gillers, was an American citizen and so could be charged with treason. Her name was Iva Taguri. Greetings, everybody. This is your number one enemy, your favorite playmate, Orphan Anne, a radio associate. The little sunbeam whose throat you'd like to touch. We're ready again for a vicious assault on your morale. The Justice Department began building a case against Taguri. Meanwhile, the American press decided to refer to her by the name of the fictional character from that Cary Grant movie. They called her Tokyo Rose. What you need is some good jive. I mean solid. Helps you relax. All set? Okay, here's the first row at your morale. Two guys are singing and singing. Hey, Pop, I don't want to go to work. Thanks for listening. Reporters at the time wrote about the radio ladies together. Axis Alley and Tokyo Rose. Mildred Gillers and Ivor Taguri. But Taguri's case was, in fact, nothing like Gillers' case. She was born in Los Angeles on the 4th of July, 1916. Both her parents were from Japan. 
She graduated from UCLA in 1940, and the next year went to Japan to visit an aunt who was dying. While she was there, the U.S. and Japan went to war. In 1942, FDR issued his infamous Japanese internment order, and both of Taguri's parents were imprisoned in a relocation center in Arizona. Her mother would die there. Taguri was stranded in Japan. She got a job as a typist, first at a news agency and then at Radio Tokyo. Meanwhile, the head of propaganda for the Japanese army instructed Radio Tokyo to make its propaganda more effective. The station found three prisoners of war who'd been radio announcers before the war, an American, an Australian, and a Filipino. And these three men hired Taguri as the host of a new variety show called The Zero Hour. She was mainly what we'd call a DJ. Not bad, not bad. And now, here's your news announcer with news from the American home front. Taguri and the three prisoners of war she worked with were instructed to make propaganda on behalf of Japan to be broadcast to Allied troops. But they seem to have decided to make fun of Axis propaganda. 75 minutes of music and news for our friends. I mean our enemies in the South Pacific. Later, Taguri told the FBI that she tried to give the show a double meaning so that it just wouldn't work as propaganda. And that seems to be borne out by the evidence, which consists of a handful of scripts and a reconstruction of her recordings that Taguri made in 1945 after the Japanese surrender. Then, too, the people who'd worked at Radio Tokyo, interrogated by the FBI, refused to implicate her. They said she'd been trying not to produce propaganda, but to undermine it. Taguri was arrested, but released, for lack of evidence. One reason the evidence against Taguri was so flimsy was that during the war, Tokyo Rose had become a catch-all term for any English-speaking woman's voice on Japanese radio. There really was Japanese propaganda on the radio, of course. It just sounded like this. How the United States transmitting her years of the four freedoms into her living, into her labor and racial programs. What about her ever-present Negro problem? Her notorious lynches are rare practice even among savages. The Americans have completely forgotten that the Negroes are just as much a part of humanity as they are themselves. That's what real Japanese propaganda sounded like. Radio Tokyo propagandists talked about race relations in the U.S. all the time. Here's what Iva Taguri sounded like. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's all for now, enemies. But there'll be more of the same tomorrow night. Until then, with your number one enemy reminding you, G.I., always to be good. Goodbye now. Is that psychological warfare? To me, it really does sound a lot more like a satire of psychological warfare. Anyway, to convict Taguri of treason, as with killers, the government needed two witnesses. It couldn't find them. So it pressured two American-born Japanese men, George Mitsushio and Kenichi Oki, who'd gone to Japan during the war and become Japanese citizens. They agreed to testify that Taguri had taunted American sailors on the air, that she'd said three damning sentences. You fellows have lost all your ships. You really are orphans of the Pacific. Now how do you think you will ever get home? On the basis of these words, these three sentences, of which no recording survives, the jury found Iva Taguri guilty of treason. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison 
at the Federal Reformatory for Women in West Virginia, the same prison where Mildred Gillers was serving her time. I don't know if they ever met or what they could possibly have said to one another. Ivor Taguri was released in 1956. She went on to run a gift shop in Chicago. Twenty years after her release, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune tracked down the witnesses who testified in her trial. They told the reporter that they'd lied, that they'd been coached and threatened. President Gerald Ford, on his final day in office, pardoned her. But I am still haunted by how she answered a question about her trial on 60 Minutes. Did that experience embitter you towards this country? I don't think bitterness is the word. I, um, I'm kind of disappointed that uh, I had to go through what I did because uh, of, of some untruths. And um, they couldn't separate the myths from facts. That's one cost, a big cost, of conducting psychological warfare. It requires so much lying during a war that when it's all over, it can be hard ever again to separate myths from facts, to sort truth from lies. This is called Geography of This Time. This is a poem Archibald McLeish wrote at the end of the war. He was trying to reckon with what the war had done to time, to nations, to language, and to knowledge. What is required of us is the recognition of the frontiers between the centuries. McLeish had the idea that in the aftermath of atrocity, people have to work out all over again how change happens, what separates one time from another, one place from another, as if the signposts have fallen, the street signs, the lamp posts. The land is barren, seemingly timeless. Who thought tomorrow was of the same nation as today? There are many who came to the frontiers between the times and did not know them, who looked for the sentry box at the stone bridge, for the barricade in the pines and the declaration in two languages, the warning and the opportunity to turn. They are dead there in the down light in the sheep's barren. This, I think, is the actual strategy of truth, reposting the street signs, attaching meaning to words, fighting propaganda with poetry, finding our way on the long road to knowledge in the aftermath of atrocity. What is required of us is the recognition, with no sign, with no word, with the roads raveled out into ruts and the ruts into dust and the dust stirred by the wind, the roads from behind us ending in the dust. What is required of us is the recognition of the frontiers where the roads end. We are very far. That's the place I'm trying to get to on this season of The Last Archive, across the frontiers of history, over roads rutted by lies and doubt. That place is very far. The Lost Archive is written and hosted by me, Jill Lepore. It's produced by Sophie Crane McKibben and Ben Nadef-Haffrey. 
Our editor is Julia Barton, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Martine Gonzalez is our engineer. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Original music by Matthias Bossi and John Evans of Stellwagen Symphonet. Our research assistants are Michelle Gao, Olivia Oldham, and Oliver Riskenkutz. Special thanks to Joan Donovan and Simon Leake. Our foolproof players are Yoshia Mao, Raymond Blankenhorn, Matthias Bossi, Dan Epstein, Ethan Hershenfeld, Becca A. Lewis, Andrew Perella, Robert Ricotta, and Nick Saxton. The Last Archive is a production of Pushkin Industries. At Pushkin, thanks to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Schnars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Emily Rostek, Maggie Taylor, Maya Koenig, and Daniela Lacan. Many of our sound effects are from Harry Jeanette Jr. and the Star Jeanette Foundation. If you like the show, please remember to rate, share, and review. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jill Lepore. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.